How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. What did America learn from the BP oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico? Images of crude oil spewing from the ocean floor captivated the country and dominated the news in the spring of 2010. A lot of that seems to have now now faded. In the summer BP of 2010, BP finally plugged the gusher, and in January of 2011, the National Oil Spill Commission, convened by President Obama, issued a report on government and industry failures that caused an 11 estimated 170 million gallons of crude oil to be released into the ocean. I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One, and for the next hour with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club, we'll discuss the Gulf oil disaster, and we're delighted to have the two chairmen of the President's National Commission here joining us. Please welcome Republican Bill Riley and Democrat Bob Graham to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I would have been myself that way. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for coming. Um, I don't think I've ever been introduced quite that way, by the way. With, <laughs> the Republican Bill Riley, but no. <laughs> is that fact? Yeah, okay. Um, the uh, let's let's get right into this, uh, uh, Mr. Riley. The when the report came out, you said that only systemic reforms in government and business could prevent a similar disaster. Are those systemic reforms happening? The systemic reforms that we recommended are underway, certainly in the Interior Department, under the direction of uh, Michael Bromwich and DOEMRE and Secretary Salazar. They really are. They've issued any number of uh, new rules on safety and environmental management that are long overdue, I think, and very defensible, very professional, and very appropriate. They um, are also reorganized so that they have separated the uh, fundraising or the the Mm revenue-generating part of oil and gas leasing from regulation on environment and safety. Those are very important. It hasn't happened statutorily because Congress hasn't done it, but Secretary Salazar has done as much as he could do to accommodate the recommendation we made. I think the a very promising and to some surprising response is the response of industry. The Center for Offshore Safety is uh, basically uh, coming together. They have had a couple of board meetings. They have, uh, they're going to interview two finalists for their executive directorship next week. They themselves have come around on a common safety and environmental management system. They've determined who can be a member, and they're going to include uh, contractors uh, in that as well of this new organization, which is going to try to police itself, set standards. They're developing criteria for third-party audits, which is really a very important part of this process. Um, that's, a, that's a very promising response, and um, frankly, industry has done more than the Congress to respond to our report. Bob Graham, what grade would you give the government and industry in terms of implementing the the recommendations from the commission? Well, probably in both places it would be incomplete. Uh, But I think the actions that have been taken at the executive level of the federal government are very encouraging. I think there are some things yet to do, such as uh, fully implement the safety case approach uh, to offshore safety as distinct from the current prescriptive uh, process. Uh, the Congress would not get 
uh, a very good grade because they essentially have done nothing. Uh, in some instances, have even gone backwards by shortening the time frame within which the uh, Department of Interior's agencies have to review uh, applications. Uh, so I would say incomplete, encouraging on the executive level, uh, discouraging in Congress. And some of the previous disasters, industrial disasters, Bhopal, Three Mile Island, had somewhat of a long-lasting and transformational effect. Is it too early to tell? Or do we know if this uh, disaster is going to have a s- similar impact on industry practice and, and oversight? I'd say the comments that Bill has just made about the industry organizing its own internal uh, safety uh, is the most encouraging thing uh, that this event will not just pass uh, into uh, people's retreating memories, but rather will be seen as both a wake-up and an opportunity for reform. Things like this, such as the Three Mile Island for U.S. domestic nuclear and, uh, on a global basis, the Bhopal industry, uh, India for the chemical industry, have been wake-ups and have been the catalyst for major reform. Uh, it certainly is our hope that Macondo will have the same effect for offshore oil drilling. Macondo being the lease area where the Deepwater Horizon was. Bill Ryan, do you think it will have similar impact, long-lasting impact as some of those other industrial turning points? Well, you know, Exxon Valdez mm-hmm. was a, uh, a crisis, a catastrophe in 1989, and it did really have profound effects on um, any number of of responses, a double-held, uh, double-held tankers came out of that, um, new liability caps, uh, a very large fine and settlement, over a billion dollars, got the attention of the industry. And uh, the company that was most involved, it was Exxon Valdez, Exxon, um, transformed itself, according to most industry observers, and became much more rigorous, in fact, perhaps the most rigorous with respect to environment and safety standards. So... That uh, has had a, a very salutary effect, particularly the government's response to it, I think, in, that, uh, in the countries. Um, we it will still uh, take some time to see what the nature of the settlement is, where the money goes. One hopes it goes to restoration when it's finally allocated, restoration of the very impaired areas of the wetlands, the productive fisheries resources of the southern Louisiana coast, for example. Um, so I think the jury's still out a little bit on that. I have to say I'm a little um, disappointed that uh, we moved on to another set of news concerns, quite understandably <clears throat> economic distress mm-hmm. uh, and banking scandals. But um, the industry certainly has to have received the message, and, uh, and that's very important, and I think they are, uh, they are lifting up their game. Well, you, you mentioned the settlement in Exxon Valdez, and that was in the courts for, for decades, for a long time. Uh, give us an update on the settlement. You know, the money flows. There's different buckets of money, some from BP, some from federal fines. Uh, what's the, the latest on Well, the settlement wasn't in the courts. That was agreed to between the United States and Exxon, uh, $1.1 billion okay. a settlement and fine. That, that wasn't it. It was, it was a suit by citizens in Alaska. A civil action. So okay. Yes. So it yeah. took a long time. Yes. Right. And you were the administrator at that point, EPA administrator during part of that. So you, you During you all said, of it, or yeah. during all of the, uh, the government's part in it, yes, the U.S. government. Then where are the buckets of money in terms of the money flowing to, to victims, you know, the fish, shrimp, uh, the shrimp farmers in the Gulf, those sorts of things? Are they getting, that was very much in the news, and now we've lost track of where that is. 
there are going to be essentially three buckets of money. One was the $20 billion that BP put up early on uh, and which has gone to deal with immediate uh, uh, needs such as the shrimp uh, farmers and the uh, uh, and people who've been damaged uh, in other economic and environmental manners. Uh, the second bucket is what's called WERDA, which is an act that was passed after Exxon Valdez, which uses a formula based on the amount of oil that was discharged uh, to reimburse for more longer-range economic and environmental damage. And then the third bucket is the Clean Water Act, which is essentially a penalty, a punitive uh, act, also based on the uh, amount of uh, oil discharged. Uh, That money is what we hope will be used primarily for restoration of the Gulf. Uh, Our commission and several other uh, groups which have looked at this issue have recommended that up to 80% of the penalties coming through the Clean Water Act uh, be directed towards Gulf restoration. There has been a uh, project underway through the Environmental Protection Agency under the leadership of Lisa Jackson to try to develop what that plan would be. Uh, The Congress has not yet acted uh, either on uh, uh, designating the 80% nor the specifics of the restoration plan. So does that mean there's no money flowing yet, that it's it's, uh, bottled bottled up in Washington? Well, for the specific purpose of restoration, uh, there is no money flowing yet. Because I read recently that the uh, president of the Louisiana Shrimp Association said their catch is down 80% this year. So there's people who are still feeling the... On the human side, maybe that's not their restoration side. I think the, the money has definitely <coughs> moved through BP's $20 billion, uh, is in the process of moving through this WERDA uh, legislation, uh, but the restoration is still waiting congressional action. And it, how are the states? I mean, you also believe that there's uh, some of the governors in the Gulf states have some differences about where the money ought to go. You're a former governor. Uh, is there some uh, some uh, tussling over where the money goes between states and uh, perhaps the federal government? Yes, and that's to be expected. Uh, our position uh, was that if you're going to justify earmarking 80% of this money for Gulf restoration, which otherwise would have gone essentially into the federal treasury, it ought to be used for Gulf restoration. The the rationale uh, for our recommendation included the fact that many of the problems that have occurred in the Gulf have been the result of federal action, such as the channelization of the Mississippi uh, River has had a devastating effect on the wetlands uh, in Louisiana, and therefore it's appropriate that the federal government make a major commitment towards Gulf restoration. Do you have thoughts on on where the money ought to go? We, we we feel strongly that it should go substantially to restoration. The uh, Senate Environment Public Works Committee has, in fact, recommended that. Uh, they have purported out. Frankly, I don't think that's going to happen unless the region gets together, unless the uh, uh, congressional representatives of the five states that are involved come together and agree, and the senators. Uh, they haven't yet. Um, there are um, some issues that uh, are very uh, important concern to a couple of governors concern economic development priorities that they have. Probably economic development will be some reasonable part of any uh, money that, it, that goes to the area. But if they do not agree, then I rather doubt the Justice Department is, it's, would support um, 
all of that funds, all of those funds going, or even the substantial majority to restoration. So time is running out on getting some kind of agreement, and uh, it seems to me it's really in the interest of those who, who want to see restoration get the priority. And it's the only significant money that that we're likely to see for a very beleaguered, very damaged environment in that in that region. And it's an exquisite environment. It's extremely important to uh, recreation, fisheries, uh, oil and gas, uh, port, uh, port activity, commerce. Um, the only chance we're going to have in the near term, frankly, given the budget situation, is to get the funds that never were anticipated, never part of anybody's plan, simply are the consequence of the disaster, uh, directed toward the most urgent ecological restoration. Of course, governors look at jobs in the, the next election, and they might want to understandably steer that towards something that get them more votes. Than you know, if, if it's if it's on the scale of what we can anticipate in the double-digit billions of dollars, there ought to be money to do a little of both, to be or do a little of, of economic development, but for the vast majority, go to eco, ecological restoration, which has economic benefits. I mean, let's face it; that's that's where the that's where the substantial majority of fish are nourished. Who uh, who then go out to the sea, and, and uh, that's where their uh, their nurseries are. And tourism can be benefited from sure. the cleanup. Uh, sure. yeah. I, I would just slightly uh, disagree with what Bill had just said. I think the the other 45 states that are involved that are not one of the five Gulf states are going to play a role in here, particularly in this climate of budget constraint, uh, mm-hmm. concerns about the deficit. Uh, we're talking about a fairly substantial uh, amount of money being diverted from general purposes to the specific purpose of restoration. And my sense is while I believe there is a political base for support for restoration, there's not going to be political support for what will be seen as just a backdoor form of earmarks or pork barrel uh, for projects that are uh, unrelated uh, to the uh, Macondo incident and unrelated to the long-term health of the Gulf of Mexico. So given the political climate in Washington, one cannot, can see this getting uh, bogged down and not being resolved, and neither the ecosystems or the, or the workers down there getting any money. That hasn't happened to any other issue I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> Great confidence. If you're just joining us, our guests today at Climate One are Bill Riley, co-chair of the President's National Oil Commission, and former Senator Bob Graham, also co-chair of the National Oil Commission. Uh, health impacts. Uh, there are some who, people who are concerned about, you know, FDA testing of, of the shrimp down there. Do we know what the health impacts will be? Um, some uh, NRDC put out a report saying that the FDA hasn't systematically tested the shrimp down there since uh, October 2010. So we don't know what's in the shrimp if there's potential long-term health concerns. Is that on anyone's radar? I haven't seen any evidence that uh, there has been any long-term threat to public health as a result of the uh, event and the seafood of which the Gulf of Mexico is one of the primary providers for the nation. Uh, I, I think, however, this issue goes into the same category as environmental damage, and that is uh, to fully assess the health uh, implications of this event and the environmental implications, we're going to require an extended period of time and a substantial investment in research. Uh, and we need to make that investment. That was another one of our recommendations, which thus far the Congress has not uh, acted upon, so that this becomes a genuine learning experience and we won't have to repeat this uh, in a future similar incident. 
But if we're not doing testing, how are we going to know if there's health impacts? That's, that's exactly the question. That's the point of the, of the monitoring, which was a very important part of the settlement in Alaska in uh-huh. 1989, $100 million for research, for monitoring. And because of that, we know that there were substantial declines in fish catches in certain key areas. There were impacts on bird populations. Uh, we won't know that really definitively in the Gulf unless there's some systematic monitoring and research. Um, and that's not I'm, happening yet. Uh, not yet, not in, a, in any serious way. Some, of the, some BP money has been used for that with some of the institutions down there. But, there, but the problem with, it, with, with monitoring is it's a long-term kind of proposition. You don't just do it once. You have to continue to do it to wow. get a trend line because also there are fish crashes that are unrelated to oil, and oil spills. And you want to get some reasonable um, preponderance of evidence if you're, if you're going to make some judgments about that. Unlikely, it seems to me, that a spill of this magnitude will not have consequences for some species for some time. The um, states were doing monitoring out to three miles of uh, oysters, for example, and clams. Um, Food and Drug Administration, Center for Disease Control, was doing monitoring farther out. Uh, They have been reasonably, and I personally went into this at one point when we heard some complaints from Vietnamese fishermen, particularly in the in the region of Louisiana, um, they had not found uh, problems or, or concentrations of hydrocarbons in fish mm-hmm. tissue. Mm-hmm. And that's what they were looking for. So um, there's something of a difference of opinion about how thorough the testing was, whether it was uh, spread around significantly enough, because it's a very large area of the Gulf that was affected. But uh, that's something that over time we should be able to resolve. One of the recommendations of the uh, of your commission also was that the oil and gas industry follow a precedent from the nuclear industry in terms of setting up um, setting that up. And is, is that the, the organization that you referred to? Center earlier? for Offshore Safety. So yes. you think that they're that they are following the nuclear industry, and that 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 will be one of the success points of, of the lessons really applied from this? The Institute for Nuclear Power Operations, which was established after Three Mile Island. Uh, really did improve the performance, monitoring, inspections of the nuclear industry without reference to government. They simply recognize their self-interest, as I think the oil industry has. One of these things happens again. It won't just be uh, maybe 37 rigs uh, that are shut down in the Gulf, but or 31 rigs, but uh, maybe the industry will be shut out of the Gulf for a while, for some time to come. They, I think, recognize that. And uh, so they are establishing something more or less on the model of the Institute for Nuclear Power Operations. It's more difficult to do. There are a lot more operators. There are a lot more contractors. It's a more right. complex, uh, variegated kind of kind of industry. But they're going to have third-party audits, and they're going to have the capability of saying, as somebody should have said to BP before this all happened, we're calling you out. Because you're, you're putting all of us at risk. You're putting us at risk by not... Uh, putting adequate attention and priority on the process safety. And we've already seen evidence of it in Texas, at Texas City, where a refinery exploded, and then up in Alaska a year later, where 5,000 barrels went out onto the snows because of failure to maintain their pipeline. So people should have known, and it turns out people in industry did know. Uh, Some of them actually went to the CEO of of BP to try to get a correction unsuccessfully. Um, This should create the capacity to uh, make sure that everybody comes up to a common standard of best practice and those who don't are, uh, are kicked out of the club. That would have consequences, obviously, to the regulator as BP well. BP says they were not grossly negligent. Were they? We were asked by the president in our charter, 
creating the Oil Spill Commission, not to get into that. Uh, we assigned cause, but not uh, we did not determine liability. But so I won't I won't get in. There's a very large. But the commission uh, doesn't exist anymore, right? So you uh, okay, well, you can say that. I won't get into uh, characterization whether it was negligence or gross negligence. That has huge uh, financial consequences. I'll leave that to the Justice Department, which I understand is beavering away on it. Senator Graham, probably the most controversial statement in our report uh, was that this was a systemic failure. There are many people who would like to say this was a failure of BP and its contractors. The rest of the industry should be left uh, untouched. Uh, the reality is, one, we found that the industry itself had significant problems. The fact that there was no response capability uh, after the event, and it took two months to cap the well, uh, is an indictment of the industry's capability. Second, the fact that in a very formidable environment, the North Sea, for every one death on their offshore rigs, we have four deaths uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, some indicator of a differential uh, in safety. Uh, second is the fact is the consequences of this can't be confined. Uh, I spoke recently at an oil conference in Abu Dhabi, and people from all over the world were talking about the fact that this incident in the Gulf of Mexico was having an effect on them, their relationship with their governments and their regulatory policies. So the, the industry is increasingly accepting the fact that they're all uh, in this together mm -hmm. and that they're gonna, the tendency will be to judge them by the outlier with the lowest standards of safety, and then the whole industry gets painted with that brush. Uh, it's very encouraging uh, when Bill has just reported about the industry's response in setting up an independent uh, industry safety watch guard. If you're just joining us on the radio, our guests today at Climate One are the co-chairs co of the President's Commission on the Oil Spill in the Gulf of Mexico, Bill Riley and Bob Graham. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about one more thing from the past and look to the future about where pivot into the future, and that is a liability cap. One uh, issue about uh, is that the liability cap is, what, $50, $70 million in, in, in countries. Is that high enough? And if this industry is really going to get together and really manage its risk, that should drive down the cost of insurance, and they shouldn't be so concerned about a higher cap because it won't cost that much if they're really doing everything that this industry group is, uh, is supposedly going to do. One thing that the uh, neighbors in the Gulf were very fortunate is that this happened to a company of BP's financial strength. Uh, this had happened to a marginal uh, exploration company that took advantage of the $75 million cap, uh, there would have been enormous distress uncompensated uh, among the, the other users of the Gulf of Mexico and its uh, terrestrial neighbors. Uh, the, we recommended that the cap be lifted. Uh, personally, I think that it should be uh, lifted in a subjective way. There are some places where the risk is clearly uh, minimal, such as shallow water drilling where we've had lots of experience. There are other places, such as an 18,000-foot uh, drill in the uh, uh, that BP was undertaking at Macondo, that are very risky. So if there's going to be a liability cap, in my judgment, it should vary with the degree of actual risk uh, that that particular operation imposes. I would just add that... Uh, the $75 million cap is not the last word. 
if there is a catastrophe, there are Clean Water Act penalties. If there's gross negligence, they're $4,300 a barrel. If it's negligence, it's, I think, $1,100 a barrel. That adds up if it's a big spill, obviously. Uh, the state has legal action that it can take under its own laws. It's not affected by the cap. Um, so probably for many medium-sized uh, operator, it's a life-threatening uh, consequence. It's probably going to bankrupt the company even now with the $75 million cap. $75 million as a symbolic number is you know, we set 20 years ago. It ought to be revisited. There's some We didn't have time to go into the details on how that should be done uh, in our six months, but um, we did notice the cap is significantly lower in Canada and it's uh, and it's lower in the in the North Sea. So, getting some parity on that, given that the, they're the same companies operating everywhere, right. really seems to me makes makes sense. And perhaps some kind of international, uh, both standard setting for certainly for deep water and for ecologically sensitive areas like the Arctic, and um, and, and then standards for for the liability might be appropriate internationally. Well, let's talk about the Arctic. That's the future. Right now, there's a lot of uh, controversy about uh, uh, potential drilling for oil and gas up there. There's tremendous reserves in the Arctic. It's, uh, it's What are the risks up there? It's far away from a lot of response uh, uh, capabilities, but there's tremendous resources up there, Bill Riley. Well, we, we recommended that a number of steps be taken to try to improve the assurance that uh, any drilling in that very fragile, very rich uh, in terms of fisheries and other resources area um, be protected against. And um, one is to bring the Coast Guard's response capability a little closer than a 1,000 miles away, which is where it is right now from, yeah. from the Chukchi Sea. Um, secondly, to um, increase the um, uh, capability to conduct a, uh, some kind of spill response. Uh, we have not had a large-scale demonstration that you can do an effective spill response in Arctic uh, fractured fracture ice situations. Um, it's a very sensitive area. Uh, on the other hand, and Shell would make the point, that they have done more than are, is required by regulation. Shell's the company that Shell's has a big lease up there Shell right now. Shell has a big lease. They've spent uh, a couple of billion dollars more on, on developing that lease, which is several years old, and uh, feel that they should have been allowed to go forward to do the exploration. And um, if they have, as they say they will have, a series, it's basically their own flotilla of response, including uh, a ship that can take... Um, a substantial amount of oil on board itself. It's shallow water largely, 140, 160 feet. Uh, it doesn't have the, form, the pressures that uh, we had in the Gulf at, uh, in a very deep, very deep formation. Um, it won't require robots to go down and do any repairs, and they promised to cease drilling uh, at least a month before the onset of ice. I would make a distinction myself between exploratory drilling and production drilling. I think they have the technology and properly supervised and regulated can use it to do exploration. Um, be nice to know what's there before before we go any further up there. Um, but I don't myself have the sense that the technology really exists for for full season production drilling. That is that what may, some of the companies want. To well, be well, eventually if they find if they find enough. But um, that's, that may not be as large a problem because basically the industry's view is, well, look, uh, we won't really develop that technology unless it turns out that it's really remunerative to do it. But developing the Chukchi Sea, you know, you've got about three or 400 miles of pipeline that will have to be built to bring it down to the Trans-Alaska pipeline. It, it'll be a while before we see any, any effects there. Um, in terms of production drilling, I think that will probably be even longer. 
Um, the Beaufort Sea is where the, where the attention has been going, and the administration has been gradually granting the permits to go ahead and, and do the exploration. There's already significant production coming by BP and among others in the, in the Beaufort Sea. Uh, so there is a series of things, and, and one important long-term uh, priority, I think, ought to be to look at the resources. You know, it's, it's really warming up there. There's going to be a lot more ocean traffic, ship, ship channel traffic there. There are likely more impacts on, on the whales and other species uh, from warming and also from, from the, just the traffic. To have serious uh, multi-season monitoring of the species, what their, their life cycle is like, how, where they are, how they migrate, and at what times of the year, uh, when uh, uh, they're most threatened by certain kinds of activities, whether it's sonar activity or ship, ship channel activity or oil and gas dredging. Be nice to know all of those things over a long period of time. I think that can be done while a certain amount of exploration goes on, but it really is something we ought to do. So parallel, uh, Bob Graham? Yeah, one other thing that the Arctic demonstrates, and that is uh, it is not the exclusive domain of any one country. In fact, there are multiple countries that claim uh, parts of the Arctic. Uh, There's the beginning of some regional discussions to arrive at common standards and a response capability uh, among the countries uh, which share the Arctic. The same thing uh, is now happening between the United States and Mexico and maybe even eventually Cuba, uh, the countries that are doing drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. I think that regional approach is an important but not necessarily uh, complete uh, answer. But if we get some experience with these regional compacts, then I think we can look towards what Bill mentioned earlier, an international set of standards, particularly for deep water offshore drilling. A lot of us have been concerned sure. about Russia, which is likely to be the first into, into the Arctic. Their representatives who came to uh, the Interior Secretary's ministerial conference were probably the most explicit and the most reassuring about the degree to which they take the threat seriously and are guarding against them. So uh, I think some of us were, were pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, but uh, And Putin himself has made statements along those lines. But there needs to be some common understanding. Uh, if, if there were a catastrophe, we ought to respond to someone else's as they ought to help respond to ours. It's, it's very much in everybody's interest in the waters flow among all of these countries in the Arctic, as they do in the Gulf, of course, to work together. Yeah, the fish don't know if it's Russian territory or Canadian We're territory. Probably not. Uh, if you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One are Bill Riley, co-chair of the National Oil Commission and Senator Bob Graham, another co-chair of the National Oil Commission. Uh, let's talk about how much we ought to be moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, Bob Graham, you just returned from Abu Dhabi, and you have some views about moving away from petroleum and toward renewable energy. One of the interesting things that's happening in that part of the world uh, is a recognition that oil is finite. Uh, a place like Dubai, for instance, has now virtually depleted uh, the oil that it one time had, and that was a contributor to some of its recent uh, financial problems. They've, uh, mm-hmm. they've had to look to their neighbor, Abu Dhabi, uh, as the source of uh, financing to finish many of the big projects that were underway uh, in Dubai. Uh, there are other places in the Middle East that are thinking about what their after uh, uh, oil economy and societies will be like and are making some preparations uh, Abu Dhabi, which I know best because of the time I've recently spent there, uh, they are not only investing in a sustainable village, which is going to demonstrate uh, how that society could operate 
without the use of fossil fuels. They also are investing heavily in culture. Uh, there is currently underway a Guggenheim uh, uh, museum uh, by uh, Frank Gehry. The Louvre is building an annex, and there's a performing arts center, which frankly makes the Sydney Opera House look like a big box uh, store. Uh, and all of that is being done because they uh, recognize that they've got to have a, another economy, and they see uh, tourism with culture as a major attraction as being part of that post-oil economy. What concerned me was I don't see the United States uh, engaged in any serious uh, thinking about what its economy uh, is going to be uh, in the post-oil era. Bill Riley, uh, you're on the board of one of the largest oil companies in, in the country. I'd like to, uh, Conoco Phillips, I'd like to ask you uh, about this quote from the chief economist at the International Energy Agency, who uh, the main energy authority for developed countries, Fatih Birol, said that one day we will run out of oil. It is not today or tomorrow, but one day we will run out of oil, and we will have to leave oil before oil leaves us, and we have to prepare ourselves for that day. The earlier we start, the better. You know, I've, I've been in the renewables business, and um, one of the things we really have learned is we cannot count on oil running out and its price going up to make renewables attractive, uh -huh. to make them competitive. We've got to take policy action to make them competitive. We need nationally a renewable portfolio standard. That is a minimum percentage of renewables that must be the, comp uh, the component of any uh, electricity generation. We have it in 35 states. It's in various stages, anywhere from 12 up to up to 20%. California's going to try to go to 30. Uh, that, I think, can make a huge difference. It, it for coal, not, it, right? It, for coal, is, as, is which I'm most focused on, more focused on than, than oil. In terms, of, in terms of, um, of the oil reduction potential, We've got opportunities we never had before. We've, we're going to have a 54-mile-per-gallon uh, automobile fuel efficiency requirement, CAFE standard. We have now hybrids, which offer us tremendous possibilities if, if, their, if their power is not all channeled into speed, if it's channeled into conservation and efficiency. Um, I think there's a large opportunity for natural gas-powered vehicles to uh, fleet some. In fact, some of the major fleet uh, owners are, are experimenting with those and, and for electric vehicles. Uh, those, I think, are going to come on. Transportation is really the issue if you look at, at oil usage, and we've got to bring it down by more efficiency in how we, how we power our cars and trucks. Another international energy agency expert, uh, the chief economist, said that he saw his huge potential for biofuels, which could account for 25% of uh, transportation, liquid transportation fuels by 2050. Are you also bullish on biofuels? Uh, I am, and I, I just spent several hours yesterday in, in Wilmington, Delaware, reviewing biofuels research. It is very close to producing a competitive cellulosic ethanol, which will take a little pressure off, uh, off the feed grains, for example, that now are powering our ethanol. Uh, it's not there yet. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's complex in terms of the kind of enzymes that have to be used and, and the cost of the refineries and the reactions and so forth time. But, but we're getting there, and I do think over time we will be able to use uh, corn stover, uh, cellulosic ethanol, and maybe some other uh, switchgrass um, uh, crops that basically are not going to take from the food supply right. on marginal land, for example. 
and begin to uh, move them into the liquid fuels. That would make, could make a significant difference along with the efficiency requirements of the cars in our oil import bill and in, in our impact on the climate. One of the challenges in getting there is price competitive, but also doing it at the scale that people under, there's the billions of gallons of liquid transportation fuels that are consumed. And it's one thing to have a bathtub experiment in a laboratory. It's another thing to build industrial facilities that can make. Well, that's what we learned. That's quite right. And and are you saying that the industrial scaling capacity and and the financing costs are also getting close? uh, They are getting close. And in fact, the, the really encouraging thing about renewables is if you look at the combination of the degree to which uh, biofuels are looking like they're going to be competitive within, within two to three years, for one thing. And then you look at the, uh, at the plummeting price of solar panels, uh, largely caused by the Chinese having entered this in big time right. and used their stimulus money to do it. Um, that, that, too, is beginning to look more and more competitive for certain kinds of areas of the country. We need one further breakthrough. We need breakthrough on storage. And if we had a, a, a breakthrough whether it's through air compression or, or whatever of storing underground, we could deal with, with the reality still, which is even in the windiest parts of Texas, which is about as windy as most places in the country, uh, when you build new wind power, and they build more of it than any other state, you still have to have almost 40% of your, of your power capability, your capacity in natural gas, just because the wind doesn't always blow. If we could store it, then we would have overcome that. And there are a lot of people working on storage now. And some of the biggest investors in this area are the actual oil companies who are, in a sense, investing in companies that want to replace their or compete with their core products. Uh, Shell, More power to them. Yes, exactly. More power, that's what we want to yeah. see. That's what, because they have, they the, have scaling the resources. Ca- and the scaling right. capacity, industrial engineers to, to exactly. do that. Uh, well, I think it's very much in the self-interest uh, of the existing energy mm-hmm. companies to get involved. There's a, a story I I think it's true, maybe mythical, that there was a dinner held in New York at the end of the 19th century with the presidents of all the major railroads, and they were asked this question, what business are you in? And each person at the dinner gave the same answer, we're in the railroad business, which consigned their companies to ultimate bankruptcy. Had they been creative, they would have seen uh, automobiles and trucks, uh, Transportation and, business, uh, aviation, uh, etc. They would have broadened their horizon as to what business they were in, and probably would have have been profitable industries up to today. Mm-hmm. So I think the oil industry is very wise uh, to be avoiding that trap of a narrow definition of what business they're in. Bob Graham is a co-chair of the President's National Oil Spill Commission. He's also here with Bill Riley and the other co-chair of the National Commission. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Bill Riley, you mentioned policy drivers need to make alternatives competitive with fossil fuels. Uh, and re- renewable electricity standard is, is for electricity. What would, policy would you like to see to make liquid transportation fuels competitive with petroleum? Well, we have a number of, of supports, and there has been stimulus money go into uh, liquid fuels, alternatives to petroleum, to fossil fuels. I think that's very important. I'll tell you, down the line, either we get some kind of cap and trade or we get a tax on carbon. Um, one of the interesting things about the budget negotiations is uh, nobody likes the idea of a, of a tax on anything. But um, when you look at the alternatives of where you would put uh, some kind of revenue-enhancing capability, um, some kind of carbon tax looks the least the least disruptive uh, and the most practically justifiable in terms of its public policy consequence. Uh, Australia has just, just moved along yeah. to do that. 
I think that's a, a very good example for us to take. Australia is a country that's got a lot of coal, exports a great deal of coal, is um, uh, a typical, uh, always in the negotiation on climate, has always stood with the United States defending those interests. It's moving now, I think, largely because of the consequence of their drought last summer, which was uh, really searing, devastating. Uh, that's that's a, a model that we might follow, and I hope that the budget negotiators will give a serious look at it. Canada, also British Columbia, Alberta also have uh, carbon taxes, other democracies. Bill Graham, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, and, and I would comment that one other thing that Australia has in common with the United States, they had their own major disaster. It occurred about eight mm-hmm. months before Macondo, it was called the Montera. In fact, there were an uh, eerily uh, number of similarities between those two incidents. And uh, that probably contributed to their recognition that they need to have a more aggressive uh, policy of developing alternatives. Mm-hmm. And how about the subsidies for, for fossil fuels? They've had 100 years to build up all sorts of complicated production tax credit, investment tax credit. You know, if you're Jed Clampett and want to drill in your backyard, you get all sorts of benefits that you don't get if you put up solar or wind, that sort of thing. Should we address the subsidy issue? Yeah, uh, I agree with Bill that in the short run, if we're going to have a sustainable energy uh, industry, it's going to have to have some kind of protection because we can't wait until the time that uh, the industry can compete on pure economics with uh, fossil fuel. Uh, but I believe that uh, we ought to have as a national direction uh, to begin to reduce the amounts of subsidies across the board, including uh, in the uh, petroleum industry, uh, in order to at some point allow the marketplace to decide who the winners or losers are in this new energy economy. Even in this uh, polarized political environment, we saw some consensus around that on corn ethanol recently where people came together and said, should we really continue the corn ethanol subsidies? I don't know if that actually got all the way through, but it got some support Mm -hmm. from Republicans and Democrats in the Senate saying, why are we doing this? Yeah, uh, there was a senator from Oklahoma, uh, a big oil state, apparently... Most of that subsidy didn't end up in the pockets of the farmers. It ended up in the pockets of the petroleum companies who were subsidized to encourage them to use ethanol in their mixture. And uh, this senator made the point, uh, if we've given a tax preference to achieve a specific purpose, and if that purpose has been achieved and no longer requires the tax preference to accomplish it, should we not... Uh, eliminate that preference. Uh, And he argued that this was not a tax increase. Uh, This was rather in the nature of a a rational uh, appreciation of the appropriate use of tax policy for policy, uh, uh, tax policy for broader economic and social policy. And once the objective had been achieved, the subsidy should be removed. Bob Graham is co-chair of the President's National Oil Commission. Our other guest today at Climate One is Bill Riley, also co-chair of the President's National Oil Commission. We are going to put a microphone up here and invite uh, audience participation. If you're on this side of the audience, we'd appreciate you going around to the other side uh, and forming the line over there. Um, So please, a lot of this really counts on audience participation. We'd like to hear your comments and questions. Uh, One one-part question. If you need some help keeping it brief, I'll be happy to help. Um, and um, yes. Yes, good morning. 
Gentlemen, thank you for all of your work on these issues. Uh, the question I have is perhaps just a tiny bit outside of exactly what you were charged to do. But as you have mentioned, there are other countries involved, and this was the Gulf of Mexico. Have you had expressions of concern or questions or suggestions from the government of Mexico regarding this bill? Yes, we yes. have. And, and we went to Mexico with Secretary Salazar, to Se- uh, Secretary, of the Interior. Secretary of the Interior, to uh, address that and essentially to try to get them to agree to a common set of standards, to engage with the United States. We found a, a, a warm welcome and complete agreement that uh, the threats that uh, we all share are important to them. They are going to go into very deep water. They're doing so this year and will continue to, and they have a large area of sovereign water that uh, they're responsible for. They are actually uh, agreeing to implement BOEMRE, U.S. Interior Department Standards for Regulating. And I had asked earlier, while we were still doing the Oil Spill Commission, I had asked my, uh, the regulator in, in Mexico if they would go to the Cubans, with whom they have a close relationship and have long had uh, diplomatic relations, to try to get them to do something equivalent. They agreed to that. Uh, I then later went to Cuba last month, and um, when I suggested that Cuba copy Mexico, thinking that probably it might be more acceptable to them than to talk about the United States, they said, we are reading every day what comes out of the Interior Department of the United States, and we're going to do everything that they're prescribing. So the Cubans, who are going into deep water next month, deeper than Macondo, by the way, and that will be the first of six wells they will drill over the next two years. They are attentive to the risks. They don't want to make the mistakes that they've seen us make. On the other hand, they've never had offshore oil and gas development of any consequence before, so this is a first for them. In my view, they're they're taking most of the precautions, trying to get their engineers trained in in Brazil, a couple of hundred of them. They've gone to Norway, where they uh, have studied the safety case, which Bob Graham mentioned earlier here. Uh, the safety case, which is the Norwegian uh, gold standard for regulation, which our commission recommends to the United States that has not yet been accepted, um, so that we have some expectation that there will be a common set of standards in the Gulf. There is a problem, however, with our sanctions in that um, if they should need a capping stack, for example, which is what finally stopped the flow at Macondo, um, VP, um, There are two of them in the Gulf, both of them in U.S. waters, the United States. And under present sanctions interpretation, they cannot be transported to Cuba to deal with a catastrophe. I have every confidence that any president would would interpret the sanctions to permit that. We'd be much better if, looking ahead, that that simply was understood in term and and also that their blowout preventer, which has 10 percent U.S. components by by statutory maximum, uh, could get serviced. And, and spare parts when it needs it, um, which under present sanction law apparently it can't do, or, or sanction policy. Uh, some of those things have to be corrected, I think, and it's in the interest of the United States and in the interest of protecting Florida and Key West particularly, which is about 60 miles from where this drilling is going to take place, to provide that assurance. Governor Graham, you were your constituency in Florida, some of the strongest supporters of that embargo on Cuba. Do you see that kind of accommodation happening? Well, I think that the, we've had other areas of cooperation, such as in weather service, uh, hurricane uh, analysis, uh, and preparation. And I think this is going to be another in that category. It is so much 
uh, in the interest of the United States and specifically of Florida uh, to, A, avoid uh, an incident, Mm -hmm. uh, and if there is one, to be able to respond quickly. Uh, The Gulf Stream runs right adjacent to the area that the uh, Cubans will be drilling in. Any uh, spill is going to immediately endanger a significant amount of the east coast of the United States, starting uh, with Florida. So there's such an interest, common interest in safety, uh, that I believe this will be another area in which we will find the basis of cooperation. Let let me add something on that. I, I learned in Cuba that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the U.S. Coast Guard were in regular contact with Cuba during the Macondo disaster, informing them about the volume of oil that was being released, the water flows, the movement of it. Uh, so that was just done informally and um, as an efficiency and a courtesy for which uh, Cuba was, was very grateful. So the, the pattern of just uh, um, common sense exchange of information about something so vital to the United States as, as safety and environmental protection for, for Florida and the other states, I think there's a precedent for it now. We're discussing the National Oil Commission at one at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Did you want to ask a question? I'm not sure if you're... Okay. Any other audience questions? We took our mic away. Shy audience this morning. I'm really surprised. Sure. Let's bring the mic back. I know some of them. They're not all shy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe with you here. The... um, uh, One question is that whether... uh, the we have a lot of people here who have been in political office before, and they seem to be a lot more reasonable once they're out of political uh, <laughs> office th- than those who are funny in. Uh, funny how that, that, that works. And so the question is whether uh, the things we're talking about, things are so pol- polarized and poisoned in Washington. Do you see this as, as a trend that, that can be perhaps subside, or can we, we ever come together across the aisle to deal with these issues? Well, we must come together. Our society uh, <clears throat> cannot operate without a heavy dose of reason to compromise. Uh, part of the advantage that we had is the president selected all seven members of our commission, and he selected them both for the diversity of backgrounds that they represented, but also because of at least his confidence that we would be able to come together collegially and arrive at some uh, conclusions as to cause and recommendations uh, for the future. Another benefit that we had is we spent a lot of time together. Uh, Bill and I almost uh, became twin brothers uh, at one point. That is not something which most uh, political uh, office holders have the luxury of doing. Uh, In fact, uh, it's become a diminishing uh, commodity in Washington. Uh, So I think there may be some lessons from uh, our experience that have broader application not only in the oil and gas industry, but also in the political community. Big camping trips for Republicans and Democrats to get away and, and spend some time. Well, that, you know, that may sound frivolous, but... No, I'm serious. Uh, they, you know, get away from their handlers and their, their bases yeah. and... Um, a former senator from Florida who was a good friend of my father's once said that the thing that killed the U.S. Senate was the jet airplane because it allowed everybody to leave town uh, on the weekends, whereas in the pre-jet uh, airplane era, members of Congress stayed in Washington, uh, and the weekends were not just frittered away. They were used uh, to develop personal relationships, which then reflected themselves uh, when they were back uh, on Monday doing their political business. Let's have our next audience question. 
Hi there. Uh, Catherine Decker, Birdsong uh, uh, Strategy Group. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the quality of the ecosystem in the Gulf as it currently stands. You had mentioned that there is very little, that maybe there was no monitoring past October of last year on the, the shrimp, um, the health of the shrimp uh, population. Um, one of the things I recently um, became aware of is that dolphins in the Gulf are dying at a rate of 10 times the rate they died prior to the spill. And that seems to be an indicator of something amiss within the Gulf and the, the things that the dolphins depend on, i.e. fish. Um, and, the, and, and so it, it's curious to me that there may not be any ongoing monitoring going on. And, and so I'm wondering, is, is there no scheduled ongoing monitoring right now of the Gulf? Is it, are we completely dependent upon NGOs to um, make these observations? Well, the fact is that there needs to be a significant and sustained commitment of resources to that ongoing monitoring, and that's what we don't have. We certainly have the scientific capability to do effective monitoring. There's an understanding of the importance and need to do it. Uh, It's the absence of the resources that's the current constraint. We uh, we. My my impression has been that uh, there has been reasonably good monitoring. I mean, given the the huge size of the the Gulf and the daunting challenge of doing it by CDC, by the Center for Disease Control and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, with regard to food safety, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has been been involved with that as well. And most of those reports that I have seen are reassuring. They are questioned by some who say, well, they're they're partial, they're not... uh, expansive enough, they may have missed certain coastal areas, and they, and they don't come uh, close to shore typically. The United States is not doing the testing three miles for the first three miles, I understand, which is a lot where a lot of the shellfish are. Um, and, I, and I don't really know how often the, the states are, are t- uh, testing for that. As far as monitoring of fish populations, their health, their vitality, and the rest, I think it's, it's sort of hit or miss. I don't think there's been any systematic efforts to try to resolve those questions. There are a whole range of species that, that were in the area that was affected by this bill. That's really where we need serious long-term financial commitment to substantial respected institutions to see season, in season and out, out of season for a number of years what's happening there. Uh, I've seen those stories, heard about them on the dolphin collapse. Uh, so far, nobody's willing to say, well, that's a consequence of the spill or that's a consequence of of the sea level or the sea temperature warming, which is also happening. Um, we just don't know the answer to that question. You, you never resolve some of those things definitively, but you can go a long way if you have a program that's designed really to, to be systematic, inclusive, and long-term. Bill Riley is a co-chair of the President's National Oil Commission. Our other guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Bob Graham, and I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's. When Senator Feinstein was here recently, she said that this – the United States could basically have a regional policy toward offshore drilling. California and the West Coast has said, look, we don't want any drilling. The Gulf states, they want drilling because they see jobs and they see the economic opportunity. Is that a reasonable approach to have a differing uh, regional strategy to offshore oil drilling where some like it, some don't? Well, we have had that in the Gulf. There has been extensive drilling in the Western and Middle Gulf. There has not been in the Eastern Gulf, largely uh, because of a decision that Florida made at the state level, and that was that it would not drill uh, in its nearshore waters and that it would discourage the federal government from drilling in its waters that were adjacent 
uh, to those Florida nearshore waters. Uh, the, the reality uh, is that the land that is beyond the state's control, it belongs to all the people of the United States and is ultimately going to be, uh, its use will be determined by the representatives from all of the United States. That essentially was the rationale of the first President Bush, who declared uh, uh, offshore oil areas along the Pacific coast, substantial other areas, other parts of the country, to be off-limits to oil and gas development. Do we have another audience question? Yes. I just want to go back to a question that I think was asked but maybe not fully answered, which is um, policies that can be enacted at the federal and state level and even at the local level, that would help the country move off our oil addiction. And if you could maybe address that a little bit further, I'd appreciate that. Well, I think Bill has given a number of uh, uh, illustrations of what that uh, would include. There's there's another issue, and that is uh, the infrastructure that supports it. I I am about to start driving uh, an electric car. Uh, and one of my concerns is that if I want to go beyond a fairly short distance, I need some place uh, to be able to uh, uh, refuel my electric car. Uh, so part of the solution to this problem is going to be developing the infrastructure that will make these forms of transportation that are non-traditional uh, by today's standards uh, pragmatically uh, acceptable for large numbers of Americans, and I think that is going to be primarily uh, at the state and local level to establish uh, those uh, networks of support. And we're seeing here, San Francisco is not a typical uh, American city, uh, but we're seeing increasing numbers of electric cars, pure electric cars, here on the streets in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So it is starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Bill Riley, um, well, I, you know. I, the, the, the range problem, the limited range, has been the, the obstacle to a lot of people's uh, decision to buy an electric vehicle. And, and that's why I think the intermediate vehicle of choice is going to be a hybrid, uh, where you, you're able to have a supplement in terms of mileage that goes beyond 70 or 100 miles uh, if you need that kind of range. Uh, that technology is around. It's been developed. It's been perfected. The batteries are, are sufficient to sustain it. And I think that will be the way we will edge into fully electric vehicles. In terms of um, the kinds of uh, vehicles that really do not are not affected by the range limitations, so many service vehicles, so many fleet vehicles, so many buses, for example, taxis and the rest, uh, they sh- we should be moving all of those to the extent we can, I think, into electricity. And that is happening. PepsiCo and Frito-Lay and some mm-hmm. of those companies are starting to de- FedEx deploy pure electrics mm-hmm. and hybrid electrics as they mm-hmm. go back and they know what their range is on any, any given day. Uh, before, before we wrap up here, I want to circle back to, we kind of skated over peak oil, and it sounds like, uh, Bob Graham, you believe that, it, that peak oil, that, that the oil supplies will be diminishing, or certainly that prices will increase over time. And, and Bill Riley, it sounds like you think that that's not the case. That Well, you know, uh, five, six years ago, we had what we thought was a relatively well-understood somewhat finite and limited amount of natural gas in the country, mm-hmm. it, it, the economy's totally changed. It isn't that the because of nature, gas. it isn't that nature produced a lot more natural gas. It's that now we have the technology and the cost is uh, is is come down to, to using it. Uh, horizontal drilling, fracturing, all the rest we know about. The same is is happening with respect to oil, and that's why I say as as someone who's watched over a long period of time and 
thought that we gradually were getting an intersection of cost reductions for renewables with rising costs of fossils, it isn't the way it's going to happen. Uh, natural gas costs uh, somewhere in the range of $4 per million cubic feet right now. Historically cheap. Historically very, very cheap. And if you're competing with that to provide electricity, you've got, and you want to do it with renewables, you've got to have some help. You've got to have a renewable standard that is applied in the state, uh, and you've got to have some other uh, tax and preferential um, treatment uh, in the tax law by the, provided by the federal government. You've just got to have that. That's what's going to be necessary. There's every reason to do it. We've done it for other industries. We did it for oil and gas. Bob Graham? Well, I think the, the question is not whether it's going to happen. It's when is it going to happen, and what does that sense of urgency say about our uh, preparation? Uh, during the 20th century, the most depleted nation in the world in its oil supply was the United States of America. Because for a long period, we not only were serving our own needs, we were exporting substantial amounts of oil to Europe, particularly in the years immediately after World War II. Uh, We still have lots of uh, oil and even more natural gas uh, in the United States, uh, but it's not unlimited. And so I think that sensible policy would begin to the process of thinking about what kind of Economy, what kind of society are we going to have uh, at that point in time and get ready for it before the last drop uh, is uh, drawn out of uh, the lands of the United States? Bill Riley, even if there is expanding supply technology, makes new fields available, some people would say that cheap oil is over, that the, the oil that's still out there is deeper, it's more expensive to get to, uh, and it requires more net energy to drill deeply. So it requires a big chunk of a barrel of oil in production to extract it, to get it mm-hmm. out. So would you accept that net energy and, and perhaps there will be some upward uh, pressure on supply just because of where it's located? And, and it's Yeah, I, I think it is. I, th- I think the projection is something like $95 a barrel next next year. Nobody can predict that with any kind of certainty. I guess, um, I guess my view... With, is that we've, we've got to kick the dependency on fossil fuels. That's really got to be the objective. Not because we're running out of fossil fuels, but because continuing to use them at the rate we are and at the rate that other countries around the world are going to use them is simply going to devastate our climate. That's the reason we've got to move on this. Uh, and I, and, I, and my, my point really was, was that we can't count on the cost of fossil fuels uh, working, working to help us achieve that objective. We'll have to end it there. Our thanks to Bill Riley and Bob Graham, co-chairs of the President's National Oil Commission. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for joining us on the radio and on TV at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you.